time now for Midweek Media Watch. Colin Peacock has been standing by. Good evening, Colin. Hi. Hi, Susanna. Hi. I, I was, uh, I'm humbled now because I thought I was in with the chance of part two of that quiz question because I cycled through Brightwater. It was barely more than a month ago, although it feels an awful lot longer now, uh, with my daughter on the, on the bike trail that passes through Brightwater. Saw the monument in the memorial for... Ernest Rutherford, um, but convinced myself it was Wakefield. <laughs> so apologies to all locals living there and uh, apologies to you because I clearly wasn't paying enough attention uh, during the interview with Maria Gill. But I love that you saw the monument because that was going to be my next question because in the front of her book there is a, a beautiful, as she describes with Alistair Hughes, uh, illustrations, a watercolour of that monument. And mm. you saw it. It's yes, yes, it did. It's just off the cycle trail. You have to take a short deviation to see it. But also in 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 the same hour, last hour with Maria Gill, you had Richard Till as well. I just turned on my radio at that point to hear him say, and I wasn't wasn't sure who it was. Just hear him say, "Oh, if if the food's gone a bit slimy uh, or, or doesn't smell good, probably you know." boil it for an extra half hour or give it a miss all together. And I think, what on earth is this? <laughs> I realised, and then he started talking about the sort of food we were eating on that bike trip, you know, stretching things out with instant mash spuds and, you know, packet soup and all that. So, uh, yeah, all, all a great hour. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, let's not use up any more of your hour celebrating the one we just had. Let's start with, well, Gabrielle dominates the media still. Let's start there. Yes, certainly has. Lots of great reporting and good media coverage. It's now, you know, in this past week, uh, as media teams have been able to get into places where initially it was very, very difficult. In uh, the Media Watch program on the weekend on Sunday, we took a look at um, the Gisborne Herald and Hawke's Bay Today uh, printing papers and then distributing them for free, full of emergency information, uh, essential stuff for households that didn't have power and communications. Um, And this weekend, stuff uh, took in free copies of the Sunday Star Times to those regions and distributed uh, those with uh, local help in some of those areas. Now, those, I guess, would have less, obviously, local information, their national uh, national newspaper, but a great thing to do uh, for um, people who still would not be in comfortable circumstances, you know, might still have had intermittent power in, at that point and, um, you know, a, a, great, a great thing to be able to do. And broadcasting, of course, there's been lots and lots of coverage, I mean, things are coming back to more like the normal bulletins and routines for broadcasters now, uh, but, you know, still an awful lot of effort going in. Some really vivid um, TV reports this past week. I was going to try and get a bit of audio to play, but that kind of defeats the purpose because it's uh, it's really the way they put together the editing, the vision, uh, that makes them uh, really quite quite vivid and Gavin Ellis, Dr Gavin Ellis who we had on Media Watch in the weekend actually said this to me in a part of the interview I, di- I didn't run just for space reasons but he was saying that some of the photography and the image and gathering moving images just, just been really excellent and uh, you know I quite agree with that because you know I think sometimes um, reports can seem a little samey in an emergency situation we have one stricken town with the silt and so on but I think TV reporters that I've seen seem to have done a great job in really kind of locating where they're reporting from and telling you what's nearby often a little map might come up before the report and you can piece it together and I've certainly felt like I've got quite a good sense over the past week of where things are in relation to others not being that familiar with say Hawke's Bay or Tairawhiti those those regions um, so yeah I think it's 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 been pretty good although I do have to say and I'm sorry I'm going on a bit here uh, but 
it has been a different experience for people living through that. And we have been contacted at Media Watch by people who say, you know, all very well for you and others on your program to be saying the media has done a great job in bringing this uh, to New Zealanders. But for people actually living through it, they found it pretty limited in some instances where they really needed news they could use. And perhaps it wasn't till later in the week um, when that news really pivoted to being directly, you know, information they could use. Um, uh, I think that's the feeling of some of the emails we've got. So, yeah, got to bear that in mind. Media are also doing their bit with fundraising. Yes, uh, that's something we hadn't mentioned. It was a bit of a miss uh, of me in the weekend on Media Watch, I think. But NZME, uh, publishers of The Herald, uh, backed the Red Cross appeal. Um, and their site says more, almost $5 million, I think, has been raised so far. Uh, they've also done something they've done after other uh, disasters, and I think even uh, in, a, in a period of the COVID crisis as well, uh, around about a million dollars, I believe, in um in advertising that they'll, they'll uh, make available to local businesses. Uh, stuff is also uh, on its website, says nearly $4 million has been raised also for Red Cross Appeal, and uh, they're also do- donating to uh, mayoral relief funds uh, in areas where a state of emergency has been declared. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's great and something I should have mentioned in the weekend. There's a lot going on. Now, I just want to pick up last week because Hayden spoke to me last week on Midweek Media Watch and he was mentioning morning hosts on News Talk ZB downplaying the cyclone's effects and challenging the precautions like school closures. There's been some reaction to that. Yes, yeah, there has. So yeah, Hayden Donnell wrapped that up for Media Watch in the weekend, and uh, what he we, we'd heard between the two of us, you know, quite a lot of the stuff on the Monday, uh, the, the cyclone hit the Tuesday, and and through the week on the mornings, all those those morning hosts who follow each other uh, were saying things that seemed quite at odds with. Uh, official information and even their own news bulletins on their own network uh, and also repeatedly saying that things didn't seem too bad in Auckland uh, where they were based but of course they're all broadcasting nationally um, and even just for one example that we didn't have in our programme in the weekend but one that struck my ear even when it was pretty clear that this was a big big deal this is I think Wednesday last week um, Mike Hosking was telling his listeners this obviously if you're flooded and you don't have power I get it everyone gets that we don't have power but mm. big picture is you've got to think about some of these questions by Thursday next week yeah. when the sun is back out and it's 24, 25 degrees has everyone forgotten all of this well, we're almost at Thursday, aren't we? And I'm pretty sure no one has forgotten. I mean, this is still an acute crisis. And yes, I think uh, a real surprise to me that he'd be saying something like that uh, on Wednesday last week when, you know, it was it was just obvious how devastating this had been. Was such a comment an exception or was that aired elsewhere, that thinking? I don't know, it's just unfathomable, to be honest. Well, between those three hosts uh, in the morning, uh, as we mentioned, so the Kate Hawksby in, in the morning from 5 a.m., Mike Hosking's breakfast show, then Kerry McIver on her, uh, uh, sorry, Kerry Woodham on her uh, mid-morning slot, there was plenty of that. But, you know, the, they did say, to be fair to them, you know, at, at points they could be proven wrong if the cyclone was devastating. They did also interview people uh, who were giving warnings, uh, you know, and did have the information at hand. So it wasn't all that kind of comment. Uh, And also, to be clear, I mean, ZB did also broadcast plenty of actual official information, reliable information. Uh, News reporters uh, were um, giving people news about what was really happening. 
so that was you know very responsible and useful broadcasting, of course. But you know, that just made the contrast with the sorts of things they were saying uh, so striking. Um, some of the news talk hosts, for example, um, Andrew Dickens, who's on later in the day, uh, I heard him giving out lots of uh, useful information and even confronting. We had some audio of that in uh, mid, uh, Media Watch on Sunday, even confronting some of the people who were calling in saying, oh, this was just, you know, woke reaction, you know, too much, uh, you know, softness going on here. If a storm comes, a storm comes. And Andrew Dickens was hitting back at these people calling in and saying, well, look, you know, you can ignore all the warnings if you want to, but if you end up blundering into floodwaters, don't be surprised. He was giving it back to them. And uh, Marcus Lush um, on the night slot, he's from 8 p.m., I think right through to midnight on weeknights on ZB, he was giving almost wall-to-wall uh, local information um, uh, through talkback. And, um, I mean, I'll get, just play an example near this. This is the sort of stuff, I think, uh, that people in Hawke's Bay and Gisborne, Tairawhiti and other places were probably looking for. Marcus, hearing you on the radio in Hawke's Bay, texting is intermittent, no power, no cell, pa- cell phone cover. Very frustrating when we hear on the radio that we should check various websites and Facebook pages for updates, but have no power internet. Hearing you, your info is very helpful. That's from Miranda. I'll get on the Hawke's Bay Civil Defence Facebook page and give you a bit of a run through of all the information there. I'll do the same with um, Ted Arfati. And has there been much criticism of ZB elsewhere in the media over the downplaying of the cyclone last week? Yep, there's been quite a bit of that uh, from certain sectors. Uh, So among them, Linda Clark, you know, former broadcaster, now a a lawyer, she was questioning uh, quite strongly whether people might have actually failed to prepare because... They heard those hosts contradicting the official advice. Um, In the stuff papers for the weekend, uh, their senior journalist Charlie Mitchell did a long piece about this. He described it as um, a kind of hangover from COVID and COVID um, opposition, if we want to call it that, or scepticism. The headline was uh, Cyclone Gabriel Scepticism is a Sting in COVID's Tail. Uh, And in that he said the divisions of COVID-19 are still with us. Now they apply to the weather. Uh, the cyclone sceptics made arguments that sounded familiar. The threat has been overstated by experts. The media is trying to instill fear. We can't put our lives in the economy on hold. Um, and so that was how Charlie summed up the attitude. And certainly that sort of stuff was coming through from callers and contributors to those uh, news talk shows. Um, and Charlie said uh, in his stuff piece, however one felt about those arguments when applied to the coronavirus pandemic, They were seamlessly uh, transferred to the cyclone, a hulking, unmanageable natural disaster. Uh, And the fact that fact should give us concern. And he made the point that we do know cyclones are not pandemics, uh, you know, and the the exact path is difficult to communicate. He said, as long as the divisions of COVID-19 remain with us, the more likely it'll be that any looming threat, even one as brutally tangible as a cyclone, becomes, in his words, another proxy battle in a war that will never end. And then adding to a story at the end, News Talk ZB declined to comment for his story. So, yeah, he's he's concerned there that, um, and it certainly was echoed by the people ringing in and contributing who were echoing the host's feelings that, uh, you know, the, the reaction was overblown and uh, didn't do to worry about this or shut schools or anything like that. Mm. Mm, indeed. Okay, let's go to the Otago Daily Times editorial today. Yes, I wasn't aware of this till someone drew it to my attention earlier today. So their headline is, uh, I've got a copy of it here, Windbags Muddying the Waters. And the windbags are in question uh, those um, uh, those news talk hosts who get a fair serve in the ODT's editorial. So the editorial says, um, 
Radio hosts have said some pretty stupid things over the years in pursuit of listeners and ratings. Most can just be ignored and drift off into the ether. I'm sort of paraphrasing here slightly. However, uh, the comments by Kate Hawksby, Mike Hoskin, Kerry Woodham, and downplaying and mocking Cyclone Gabriel uh, should not be easily forgotten or forgiven. Uh, the ODT says they were reprehensible, arrogant and insensitive, and showed they clearly thought they knew better than the experts. These swaggering windbags, says the ODT, should have taken a step back from being legends in their own lunchtimes and the thought of potentially real and fatal consequences of not backing official warnings. Instead, says the ODT, they took the easy and lazy route to boost their ratings among the naysayers. <laughs> There's not much left to say, but the issue did come up on RNZ's panel on Monday. It did, it did indeed. And uh, this is um, Wallace Chapman's guest on the panel, uh, comedian and writer Raybon Khan, uh, who didn't miss, mince his words when asked for an opinion. Government agencies were trying to send messages of preparation and caution. They dismissed it and turned it into a, the, the culture war or a, a, a right wing pro national party, anti Labour Party, well, PC I, gone I, mad uh, argument. <laughs> I, I don't want to um, jump in on uh, what's going on with their station, but actually expanding perhaps the role of media in this. Mm, so Wallace sounded a little uncomfortable there as Raybon can sort of went into a, the kind of political dimension and also directly criticising, um, you know, another radio station, which is awkward. Uh, Wallace actually after that shifted the topic quite artfully to um, why Enid Blyton was fond of nude tennis. Um so maybe later we'll talk about another uh, controversial children's author, but not controversial for the purposes of nude tennis. Uh, but shortly after that, uh, some of the listeners to the panel uh, delivered a bit of feedback, and uh, yeah, Wallace had uh, this uh, amongst it. Please, Wallace, don't shush him. Did I shush you? It's, cri- <laughs> it's critical. Everyone understands the damage done by that station and their continually cowardly lack of comment. Cheers, Raven, says Fiona. So... Fiona and Raven Khan, are they, were they right? Was that fair? Well, I, no, I don't think so, really. I mean, Raybon can they put a very political frame on, even party political, uh, you know, and talk about the culture war and so on. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's really quite part of that matrix. I mean, what, what happened was I think we had that trio of hosts on that network whose business as usual, their, their MO is to kind of criticise the government. They often say they're not journalists, they're just commentators who tell it like it is on behalf of the audience and it's part of the engagement, all of that. So we know that. It's commentary and you listen to it uh, or don't, you like it or don't, whatever. Um, But, you know, it is telling that even where there was a threat of a really dire natural emergency uh, and disaster developing that they just couldn't change out of it. And I find that quite surprising even after those Auckland floods just a fortnight earlier. You know, so sudden, so devastating. You know, here again we have this, uh, you know, this atmospheric catastrophe and it just seems odd. I mean, Gavin Ellis in our program did say something like, uh, you know, maybe they find it difficult at that network to switch that culture off, that culture of contrarianism. But, you know, in these circumstances, they really should try, which is a more mild way of putting it. Um, But it it was, so whereas I think people like Raybon saying it's political and uh, that these stations, or the station in particular, has a lean to the right um, agenda. I mean, I know that's a criticism a lot of people voice of Newstalk ZB. But, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think they, they organise their programmes like that. 
But uh, it is telling to me that all three of those hosts were saying those things, downplaying the cyclone in advance, were all making a huge deal out of the school closures and insisting that was the wrong move when clearly it was just a sensible precaution. Um, and as Hayden mentioned to you, I think, last week, you know, this was supposed to be the day uh, the media had been told that the Prime Minister will probably announce these new anti-truancy measures. And I think they were determined to pursue that talking point on air and engage their audience about schools and responsibility and all that sort of stuff. And even, you know, even with this huge emergency going on a so well signposted cyclone, uh, they just couldn't um, pivot out of, of, of talking about that. So I guess seems to me those particular hosts have a really free hand to say and do what they want and that leaves their station and you know its owner NZME pretty exposed when they you know decide they want to go rogue uh, behind the mic so have any of the ZB hosts expressed regret or revisited their comments in any way yeah, and it's editorial. The ODT said, oh, I don't expect that I'll ever show any kind of contrition whatsoever. But actually, some have, uh, in a way. And one of them was one who I don't think needed to at all. That was Andrew Dickens, the early afternoon host um, at the moment on ZB. Um, you know, as I said, on the Monday, uh, when the situation was getting acute, he was hitting back at people who were critical of the precautions. And uh, last Monday, uh, he was uh, fielding feedback from unhappy listeners in Hawke's Bay like this. Wade sent me a text. I live in Hawke's Bay. We had red warnings two or three days out. Nga mihi, says Wade. Well, I'm sorry, Wade, I didn't say that on Monday, and um, I apologise for that. I I warned a lot of places, but I didn't warn Hawke's Bay, and that's what shot me the most, and they've been hit the most. Uh, Andrew, people said it wasn't just a storm coming, it was a hurricane cyclone, is uh, what I uh, should have said. And... um, yeah. Sincere? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, like I said, he's, Andrew Dickens was one of the good guys here. You know, he had he had a clear understanding that this was um, this was serious and the people talking about fear-mongering and so on were at risk of endangering themselves. So, uh, but, I, you know, you've got to give him credit for acknowledging there to people in Hawke's Bay saying, you know, who, who as, as I mentioned earlier, clearly felt they didn't get news they could use when they really needed it and got on him for acknowledging them um, in that way that he did there. And anything from the others? Oh, the other, well, no, no contrition I'm aware of from Mike Hosking, unless I missed it. Um, but I did catch a bit of him. I think this is Tuesday. I hope I've got this right. But um, he actually had a go at other media uh, when, in a bit where he was talking about friends of his who have someone staying with them from the Hawks Bay uh, at at the moment. And yeah, this is what he had to say. She's afraid to be alone at night because her neighbourhood is getting ransacked by gangs stealing stuff. It is the latest chapter in the Hawke's Bay tragedy, a tragedy that sadly is also obsessing the media to a point they have forgotten other parts of the country, like Gisborne, uh, who at one stage were the centre of the drama, until, of course, they weren't. Now, I don't think there's any basis for saying that the media have uh, abandoned Gisborne. Um, I mean, true enough, there is more reporting from Hawke's Bay and other areas, Esk Valley, and so we're seeing a lot of those TV reports. But there's certainly a lot of coverage of Gisborne as well. Um, Kate Hawkesby, uh, Mike Hosking's partner, said on air this week, the crisis has brought out the best in New Zealanders, but you know, made no mention of the fact that you know, in the early part of the crisis, uh, hadn't exactly brought out the best in her broadcasting. Uh, but uh, the ZB mid-morning host Kerry Woodham did have a moment of reflection. This is from Friday last week uh, after she got some feedback from a woman in Hawke's Bay who said that, uh, frankly, she reckoned Kerry Woodham owed New Zealand an apology. Don't think I was being hysterical. I agree I probably conflated two separate things because I am very worried about 
our children's education and how much they've missed out on during the COVID years. And I'm also concerned about what our response will be going forward in weather events. I would rather see a resilience built in, not just to the infrastructure, but into people. Hmm. Did she realise she got it wrong last week? Yeah, I think she did there. Um, but what she was saying was she conflated two things, just her her anxiety and feelings about the importance of education and kids being in school uh, overrode the feelings about the cyclone. I don't know, but she accused, uh, she did a Facebook post after this, which expanded on this, where she said, um, look, a lot of people are reacting without knowing the context, you know, saying they don't understand the context of the comments I made and the importance of education, etc. But I mean, I think it's a bit rich of her to accuse, you know, the critics of missing the context when the, the context of what was happening in the atmosphere and in those regions that got so badly hit was just clearly not front of mind for her when she was saying uh, that it was the wrong move to, to close the schools and part of, you know, COVID era fear and uh, all of that stuff when it was clearly a sensible precaution. Um, I mean, you're talking about, you know, I want to see resilience built into people. I mean, if you're talking about sending kids to school during a cyclone what does that mean like building them into life jackets or something so they don't drown i don't know it just didn't sound particularly convincing to me um but she says you know she was trying to make this point that education needs to prioritize it simply wasn't made well enough that's on me she said so that's kind of uh, in a sense uh, taking some sort of responsibility and i guess and acknowledging it was wrong curious mm. yeah i mean she also made comments about the Auckland schools being closed but she also did say personally she said I did take the warning seriously I got an extra water checked the drains and guttering and made sure the car had petrol so she'd taken it seriously you know as an as an Aucklander uh, but clearly wasn't communicating that same sort of thing uh, to the listeners when she was saying you know it was nothing too much to worry about um she also uh said um that uh, later on, she said, made this interesting comment to another critic. She said, I think the endless COVID lockdowns have taken away all my perspective. The thought of being locked down again makes me feel physically ill and personally threatened, even for something as legitimate as a weather event. Um, and I, I, you know, I think if you've got free reign on a national talk network during an emergency, you really need to have um, perspective. So, you know, and if you don't, then maybe, you know, the editors need to have a bit more oversight um, during an emergency as probably what I would say. Yes, that's what I'm going to say to that. <laughs> Have we, is that it? Yeah, I think so. Should, I think yeah, that's, yeah, that's, right? that's probably all, all, all we need to say. There was a bit of to and fro in that Facebook post as well about um, uh, people raised the fact with her that Media Watcher did this piece. She also had another interesting response was that RNZ and that program uh, is opinion, not journalism, Kerry Woodham replied. So, yeah, interesting attitude. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I think uh, she's probably feeling a little sensitive at that point. Shall we go to the Fox Docs scandal? Yes, let's do that. Yes. Another overseas network in trouble, I guess, uh, for the opinions of its hosts. Mm. So this one relates to the voting machine maker Dominion Voting Systems, uh, accused by on Fox by people uh, allied to Donald, Donald Trump uh, that they were complicit in the fixing of the election in favour of uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats. Uh, so they have uh, sued uh, a, a lawsuit amounting to about three billion New Zealand dollars, if my maths is even roughly right, uh, which is against uh, Fox Corporation and cable uh, TV news networks that belong to it. 
And uh, it, this goes all the way to the top because uh, there have been court papers that have been uh, filed now as part of the lawsuit, uh, which include in them emails and text messages which go all the way to the top, even Rupert Murdoch among those who are saying uh, that the claims of Trump and his backers uh, that drew in Dominion voting systems complicity and the, the rigging of the election uh, were just not believed by almost any senior executive at the place, including the guy at the top, Rupert Murdoch. How damning are these emails and text messages? Well, they're pretty damning because it, it's just clear that no one in a position of authority, that's the on-air hosts, the big names, and the executives, including the big, big boss, uh, had any belief uh, in the credibility of these rumours of uh, fixing the election. Uh, really crazy stuff and damaging, Rupert Murdoch said in one email uh, just weeks after the election uh, regarding uh, claims made by uh, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's lawyer, on Fox News. Then top anchors, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingraham, all expressed uh, no faith whatsoever in Sidney Powell, the pro-Trump attorney who was aggressively promoting these claims of, of election fraud. Um, Tucker Carlson was sending messages to his producer saying, we re- worked really hard to build what we have. These people, he didn't use the word people, he used a much ruder word, are destroying our credibility. It enrages me. Uh, so heaps of evidence of this. Tucker Carlson said in another message, Sidney Powell is lying. Um, uh, Sydney is a complete nut, said Laura Ingram. No one will work with her, ditto with Rudy. So they have absolutely no faith in these people or what they're saying, and yet uh, they went ahead and, and broadcast all this nonsense to their audience. So could the lawsuit from the voting machine maker be serious for the future of Fox News and Rupert Murdoch? Well, it could be. I mean, if that sum, the $3 billion, is, uh, is to be taken seriously. So Dominion brought that lawsuit against Fox, arguing that uh, some of these anchors, particularly Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs, just didn't challenge the narrative. They put up the claim that Dominion was responsible for this with their voting machines rigging and producing inaccurate results, uh, but but no evidence for it. So that's what it's all based on. I mean, Rupert Murdoch's very rich, News Corp's a big company, but if if the suit came out at anything like that level of the outcome, um, then, yeah, it would it would definitely be damaging. So what's Fox saying to defend its honour? Well, they say in the court papers that uh, have now been made public and available to media that Fox News says, we have fulfilled our commitment to inform fully and comment fairly on these claims that uh, Dominion helped rig the election in favour of the Democrats. Uh, this is, again, quoting from uh, their deposition. There will be lots of noise and confusion generated by Dominion and their opportunistic private equity owners, but the core of this case remains about freedom of the press and freedom of speech, which are fundamental rights afforded by the Constitution. So, look, I'm no American legal expert, and I know that that freedom of speech, that First Amendment is you know, a very powerful thing with a lot of legal standing. And, it, look, in one sense, you think any big company that's actually able to crush or um, financially cripple a news media entity with a lawsuit that's that big is is not a good thing. Um, And many cities across the US have Fox News, local news services, which aren't part of this uh, politically driven sort of national Fox political machine. Uh, So that would be a loss too if they were harmed. But, you know, in the end, this this defamation, the, the recklessness of this claim about Dominion based on people who clearly, you know, we know uh, anyone in a position of authority either behind the mic or in the executive offices had no faith in whatsoever. Uh, that seems so reckless and, and premeditated, it's pretty hard to be sympathetic. 
So rival media are not sympathetic either in the US is really what we can take away from that. <laughs> no, definitely not. In fact, you know, they have predictably perhaps been uh, having a field day, whether they're doing it, um, playing it for laughs or doing it very seriously. So on the serious side, this is the take of uh, CNN's senior media reporter, uh, CNN, of course, being a, a huge big rival in uh, cable news. This is uh, Oliver Darcy. I think these messages really just expose Fox News as a propaganda network. That's what they do at the core. I mean, they show in excruciating detail that the highest ranking executives at Fox News, they knew, they privately knew these election claim frauds, uh, fraud claims from the, the Trump team were nonsense. They used very harsh language to describe them, but they allowed these lies to take hold on the network's air. Mm, so that was the the serious side of it. And then on his uh, weekly comedy show last week tonight, uh, John Oliver uh, latched onto the fact that the messages reveal that what was really driving Fox in airing the stuff that they knew was rubbish uh, was that they were just very worried about uh, the audience that's so loyal to Trump might desert them. They seem to understand that acknowledging Biden had won was alienating their viewers. Sean Hannity wrote to a producer after the network called the election for Biden, respecting this audience, whether we agree or not, is critical. Fox has spent the month spitting at them. <laughs> to which the producer replied, right, our best minutes from last week were on the voting irregularities, which, remember, they all knew were bullshit. Yeah, so John Oliver, uh, I guess we'll dine out on that one. There was plenty more in that that segment. Uh, so they're really enjoying Fox's embarrassment. But, yeah, in the end, it won't be the... the uh, that that cuts them it'll be if they lose this lawsuit and uh, you know we'll just have to see but again um, it would, uh, it'll play out interestingly because Fox cited uh, in their defence uh, a, a precedent from 1964 which involved uh, supporters of Martin Luther King in 1960 buying a newspaper advertisement which contained inaccuracies about uh, law enforcement officials in southern states who had been um, uh, beating up and uh, imprisoning uh, illegally, so they believed, uh, protesters in civil rights demonstrations. Now, that was a very fraught case because it was inaccurate, and yet they claimed that the free speech overrode uh, the, um, you know, the, the inaccuracies and any, any damage to reputation uh, or even financial penalty that might have been incurred from, from that bad publicity. So, you know, this, that's nearly 60 years ago now in a major civil rights landmark case. So, yeah, it could be some interesting precedents in that case when it goes to court. I'm looking at the time now, Colin. What would you like to go to next? Oh, I think we could skate through the old Roald Dahl row. It's taken up so much of the media. Go on then. Right. Well, in a sense, this is another story about censorship and freedom of speech. This is the outrage over the rewriting of uh, the well-known children's author, Roald Dahl. Um, not a nice guy, it turns out. I didn't know much about his background, but yeah, plenty of uh, not nice things about his past. So uh, it turns out that Puffin, the publishers, have been employing sensitivity readers, which I also didn't know a whole lot about, uh, to go through the language, weed some out, so for new editions to be published, uh, there will be some references. So, for example, passages relating to weight, mental health, gender and race have been altered. One example here, uh, Augustus Gloop from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, in the original story in 1964, described as enormously fat, now simply enormous. They've taken the, the fat word out. So um, apparently uh, many, many examples of those uh, from the books that have been trimmed out. Huh. Okay. Anything else? Well, there, there was, I mean, this outrage about this internationally, but the locally the debate's been quite interesting because almost 
of all the bits I've heard and all the panel discussions and opinion pieces and so on, most people saying this is censorship, this is uh, unjustifiable meddling. Uh, but there was one contrary voice. Uh, it was interesting. This was on uh, News Talk ZB's Sunday session show, their weekly panel. This is Lorna Riley, who's a host uh, on Coast FM. The good that changing this does um, outweighs uh, any outrage from purists. Um, Roald Dahl himself, I mean, his own family has had to apologise for some of the comments he's made about certain sectors of society, for example. His, his words are not necessarily acceptable today, and I think that goes for some of his books as well. And if you actually drill down into how much has been changed, it's very, very little at all. Yeah, and I think she's right about that in, in the end. Uh, but I think the way that this has generated a kind of storm about woke censorship and so on um, is actually to do with where the story really came from in the first place. And where did it come from? Well, uh, it was Britain's Daily Telegraph newspaper, and that's a conservative-leaning daily paper in the UK. Uh, lately, uh, in the more recent years, it's kind of got all hit up about woke interventions and so on. So hence, in the many stories I've written since breaking the story about the Roald Dahl so-called censorship, the butchering of Roald Dahl is an assault on liberty by a neurotic elite. So plenty of that sort of stuff. But I read the actual Telegraph story last Friday that broke the story, and way, way down, it does say... The Dahl family and publishers have been revising the text for years. So back in 1964, the Oompa Loompas in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory were black pygmies enslaved by Willy Wonka. And then in the, the original part of the book says, the deepest and darkest part of the African jungle, and they were paid in cocoa beans. Now, Roald Dahl himself rewrote that uh, in, a, in his own words. In the 1973, that edition was changed, and they just become uh, little sort of fantasy creatures, sort of no no kind of ethnic element to them at all. So he'd realised that this was wrong, um, distressing, and so on, he, he himself. So a lot of people are now saying, well, actually, the changes that are being made to the books uh, after his, his death, uh, the sort of things that he himself, and then after that, his family and the Roald Dahl Story Company uh, that uh, owns all these texts, uh, were doing themselves. So you know, really no need to be um, thrashing around in a great woke frenzy about a few words uh, being changed. So could this controversy end up being helpful in any way? Well, I think it might, because the worst thing would be if people are doing this to books, and it seems it goes on, there, are, there is this trade of sensitivity r- r- readers, the acknowledgement that publishing might not be the most diverse and aware industry in the world, and a, a other sets of eyes might help. Uh, it could, but it would be a shame if publishers then try to hide that, because the best thing is if people know this is going on, if it's transparent. Um, in fact, one UK author said, look, Maybe the best solution here, just stick a note explaining that Roald Dahl was a bit of a, and then he used a word I simply wouldn't use on the radio or indeed in any children's book. And uh, the spin-offs book author, Claire, maybe picked that up and said, yeah, this is this is the solution, maybe just explain that this is not the original text. Uh, and, and they've messed with it. And uh, maybe some of Puffin's edits seem a little oversensitive because uh, children don't, don't need to be protected for everything and it could be just an open-ended case if you start doing that but she was saying in the end uh, no big deal and um, you know this is just the way it is if it's explained to readers they'll understand if you explain to readers they'll understand well thank you very much for the midweek media watch tonight Colin we're heading to the news no worries thanks so much cheers